0: This morning, our passage is Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but by anything but prayer.
1: The majority of this message turns on my interpretation of verse 19 and the question of who is the faithless generation of whom Jesus speaks. He's talking to someone when he says, "O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Who's he talking to? With whom is Jesus so grieved and so frustrated? Well, in the context, there are really only four options. It could be the Father, at whose words Jesus utters this cry of frustration. It could be the crowd who had gathered about the scene in great amazement. It could be the scribes with whom the disciples were arguing, or it could be the disciples themselves. I'm going to argue this morning that Jesus' frustration and disappointment is directed towards his own disciples. For one thing, what seems to evoke this cry of grief and frustration from Jesus is the father's statement that he had brought his demonized boy to the disciples, and they had been unable, incapable of driving it out. I think that's the faithlessness that is drawing Jesus' ire. For another thing, in Matthew's version of the same event, when the disciples ask why they were unable to cast out the demon, Jesus replies that it was owing to their lack of faith. Matthew 17, verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So I believe the best way to understand Jesus' frustration and grief in verse 19 is to see it directed towards his disciples who had been given the authority to cast out unclean spirits back in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus sent them out, he had given them authority over unclean spirits. They had cast out many unclean spirits, Mark tells us in Mark 6.13, but now in Mark 9, it seems that they are unable to cast out this particular demon because of a lack of prayer, verse 29, which was itself the result of a lack of faith, verse 19. Therefore, I believe that we have two interactions in this text which demand our attention this morning. There is Jesus' interaction with the boy's father, which provides us a lesson in the wonder of Christ's mercy, even for those whose faith is weak and faltering and stumbling. The truth displayed is that it's not the strength of your faith which saves, rather, it's the strength of your Savior. Then secondly, there is Jesus' interaction with his own disciples, which provides us with a second lesson. A lesson in the dangers of performing Christian ministry in one's own strength, rather than by faith in the strength that God supplies. Faithless ministry is, as we will see, powerless ministry. So two interactions, two lessons to be had from this text this morning. In other words, what we almost have here is two sermons or rather one sermon that speaks to two different audiences that are represented here this morning. To those who are here, to those of you who find yourself in a state of desperate need, struggling to believe that God cares, that God hears your cry, that God knows your pain, that God has compassion and sympathy for you, there is encouragement here in the midst of your struggle this morning. And to the church, to the disciples who minister day in and day out in Christ's name, there's a warning here for us. There's a warning that there are two ways to do the work of the ministry, but only one results in God's power to save sinners, to defeat Satan, and to raise the dead. So two sermons, one text, will begin with Jesus' word to the disciples. When Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Peter and James and John, they returned to the rest of the disciples and they found them surrounded by a great crowd and engaged in a heated debate with some of the scribes. And Mark records that when the crowd saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. Why? Well, it could be some combination of the fact that Jesus had a reputation as a great miracle worker. Maybe they had heard of Jesus' power, of Jesus' authority that he had wielded down south in Galilee. And maybe it was also a combination of the fact that he's here now, and perhaps he'll settle this dispute that's been fomenting in the midst of this crowded street. Jesus, when he arrives, he asks them, that is the disciples, what were you arguing about with them, that is the scribes? Well, at this point, a man in the crowd spoke up, telling Jesus that he had brought his son, intending to bring him to Jesus. But when he couldn't find Jesus, he brought him to Jesus' disciples. That his son was possessed by an evil spirit who made him mute and induced within him something akin to epileptic seizures. When he could not find Jesus, who at the time was returning from the Mount of Transfiguration, he had asked his disciples to cast it out, but they were unable to do so. Why this provoked a dispute with the scribes is unclear, but we can venture a pretty educated guess. It probably had something to do with the disciples' authority to minister in this way, with their authority to cast out demons. We can guess that because the scribes and Jesus have been bickering about the issue of authority and power since the very beginning of Mark's gospel. They were ever suspicious of Jesus, ever suspicious of Jesus' disciples, who had neither the formal rabbinical training that they themselves had, nor their official sanction. They viewed Jesus throughout Mark's gospel. The scribes viewed Jesus as a threat to their position as the recognized authorities in the religious life in Israel. At any rate, the scribes play no further role in this episode. They just sort of disappear from the scene. And Jesus' attention is now fixed upon the boy and his father and the disciples, at the father's statement that the disciples were unable to cast out the demon, Jesus just erupts. This is a very strong verb. He erupts with frustration and grief. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, we're going to return at the end of this message, to the interaction between Jesus and the Father and his boy and the demon. But for right now, I want to skip on ahead to verse 28 and the question which the disciples later asked Jesus. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, what happened? Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus' response was that this kind cannot come out by any other means but prayer. Now, lest we misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, the point that Jesus is making is is not that there are different classes of demons, some which require prayer and some which don't. That's not Jesus' point. The problem here lay not in this particular demon's power, rather the problem lay in his disciples' powerlessness which Jesus says is caused by their prayerlessness, which itself is the result of their lack of faith. I want you to see that in this text. Verse 19, O faithless generation. Verse 29, This kind can only come out by prayer, and you didn't pray. That's why they were unable to drive out the demon from the boy, even though they had earlier been granted authority and power to cast out demons. See, when Jesus had sent out the twelve to go throughout Galilee and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to heal diseases and to cast out demons, he had bestowed upon them authority and power in his name and they had wielded that power to great effect. Mark chapter 6 and verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the question that I'm asking here when we get to the Mark 9 and the question that the disciples themselves were asking is, what happened? Where'd the power go? Why are they now unable to do what previously they had been able to do? Is it that they had just run into a demon finally who was just too powerful for them? No, that is not what happened. Because if that were the case, if Jesus were saying, Whoa, 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 guys, just just chill out. You you just ran into one that, that was too powerful for you. It requires my power. Then what Jesus says to the disciples, both in Mark and especially in Matthew's gospel, wouldn't make any sense. In Matthew 17 20, in response to the disciples' question, Why were we not able to cast it out? Jesus says, It's because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith, even as the grain of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, if a mustard seed of faith is capable of moving mountains and making nothing impossible, then it cannot be that this demon was simply too powerful for the disciples. Again, the problem lay not in the demon's power, but in the disciples' powerlessness, which was a result of their prayerlessness, which was a result of their lack of faith. So the question that I have, that I must seek to answer this morning is, why had the disciples been rendered powerless when just a few months earlier they had been filled with power such that the demons fled from their command? The answer lies in Jesus' frustrated and grief-stricken rebuke. They had grown faithless, verse 19, and their, faith manifest, or their faithlessness was manifested in their prayerlessness, verse 29. It seems to me, and I find evidence for this in their question to Jesus, why could we not cast it out, that the disciples had begun to imagine themselves as having that power inherent within them to cast out demons. They had been gifted, they were special, they had the power, and they could wield it as they wished. They had begun to imagine that the power to cast out demons resided within them rather than in God, and therefore they had begun to minister in their own strength rather than to rely on the strength which God supplies to those who trust Him. That's why a mustard seed of faith will move mountains and make nothing impossible. It's because it's a faith that relies on the strength and power of God for whom nothing is impossible and who can move mountains without breaking a sweat. The disciples, on the other hand, in their own strength, were not only incapable of moving mountains, they couldn't even remove one solitary demon from a small child. See, when confronted by this evil entity, they did not pray for God's power, they did not trust in God's strength, and they did not seek God's glory. They arrogantly began commanding the demon to leave, and in return, the demon simply mocked them. The scribes then seized upon the opportunity to declare that that this powerlessness therefore proved the illegitimacy of the disciples and of their master. So there's a vital lesson to be learned in this text for a church that seeks to do the work of the ministry. That's our job, right? Right? We are disciples whose job is to go forth and make disciples. We are the ambassadors, the ministers of Christ, to whom has been entrusted the work of the ministry. And so there's a lesson here. The power for effective kingdom ministry, the kind of ministry that bears real, genuine, lasting results, does not reside within us. Therefore, if we attempt to perform kingdom ministry, preach sermons, teach Bible studies, lead connect groups, lead Awana discussions, counsel a friend, share the gospel, go on mission trips, serve and visit widows. If we attempt to perform such kingdom ministry in our own strength, relying on our own wisdom, trusting in our own power, then that ministry, all of it, will be eternally fruitless, just like the disciples who tried to exercise a demon without trusting in and praying for God's power. So as we consider this and its application for our own ministries, I want to make three notes. Number one. I want you to note the source of the kingdom power that we need. That is the power that produces eternally fruitful ministry. Where does it come from? Well, the power for effective kingdom ministry, as evidenced by this text, does not reside within the disciples of Jesus. It does not reside within us. It resides within Jesus himself. Jesus made this point abundantly clear on the night of his betrayal and arrest. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from continually abiding in the vine who is Christ, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing of eternal value in your connect groups. You can do nothing of eternal value in your deacon ministry. You can do nothing of eternal value in Awana. You can do nothing of eternal value in your counseling with friends. You can do nothing of eternal value in your sharing of the gospel with neighbors and coworkers. No fruit will come from that kind of ministry that trusts in its own power. You can do nothing just let the weight of those words sink down upon you and rest upon your ministry. Nothing apart from the power which Christ supplies, we can accomplish nothing of eternal value. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we can't produce by our own natural power fruit that has the appearance of eternal value. It happens all the time. Churches that have this tremendous production value and they can turn their stage into living waterfalls, right? They attract tons of people. Pastors with great charisma and eloquence, they attract tons of listeners. Evangelists with rhetorical skills who just know intuitively or by long experience how to how to draw the bow across the string and, and, and pluck the heartstrings of the listeners, they can make tons of converts. But in the end, it's all chaff and it's all destined to burn. Because the only ministry that matters, that bears fruit, that remains and redounds to eternity, is supernatural ministry. And supernatural ministry can only be performed by supernatural power. There is a great danger in relying upon our natural gifts to perform natural ministry and produce natural fruits. It is dangerous to prayerlessly lead your connect groups. It is dangerous to prayerlessly preach sermons. It is dangerous to prayerlessly offer counsel. It's dangerous because the only kind of fruit that it can produce is counterfeit. Second, I want you to note the means of kingdom power. So where's the source? The source is in the vine. The source is in Christ himself. How do we get into that source? How do we tap into that source? What are the means of kingdom power? How do we access the supernatural power from Christ that is, in fact, required to perform supernatural ministry? The answer is, by faith through prayer. By faith through prayer. If you want to anchor that in Mark 9, by faith, verse 19, through prayer, verse 29, the disciples could have driven out this demon. This is what the disciples failed to do according to Jesus. They did not believe that they needed the power of God for this For this time, to cast out this demon, therefore they did not pray. They just swaggered into the situation and began doing what they knew how to do, what they had done so many times before, except in this instance, God let them fall flat on their faces. He let them endure tremendous humiliation in order for them to learn an all-important lesson. And we need to learn the lesson from their failure lest the same thing happen to us. Let's not make the same mistake. The only way to perform kingdom ministry that bears lasting fruit is to recognize that the power for such ministry does not reside within me. Therefore, I must pray for God to supply it and to trust in Him to do so when we ask because He's promised to provide the power that we need when we ask for. This is how we abide in Christ and so bear much fruit. That's what Jesus said, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the natural question that I would ask is, well, how do I do that? How do I abide in the vine? How do I abide in Christ and so bear much fruit? Well, Jesus answers that question two verses later, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my Words abide in you. Ask. Ask. Pray. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. There's a promise that you can anchor your faith in. All right. I've got a Connect class coming up. I've got a friend who's going to be calling me. Her marriage is in trouble, and she's going to be asking me for counsel, and I need wisdom. I've got to preach a sermon here, and I've got to do nothing less than raise the dead by the power of the Spirit. And I don't have that, I don't have that power resident within me. What am I going to do? I'm going to acknowledge the truth that apart from Christ I can do nothing. I'm going to let his word abide in me. I'm gonna soak it in. I'm gonna stand upon it. I'm gonna ask what I wish. I, I wish for wisdom. I wish for power. I wish, I wish for knowledge to know how to craft this message. I, I need it. And then I'm gonna trust that God will provide what He's promised to provide. That's how kingdom ministry is to be performed. By faith through prayer. So says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So if we would perform supernatural ministry, which is the only kind of ministry I'm interested in, It must be performed through the supernatural power that God supplies. And God supplies such power by faith through prayer. Finally, I want you to note the end of such kingdom ministry. Why does God do it this way? Why doesn't God just give the power for for ministry on a permanent basis? Why didn't he give the authority to the disciples to cast out demons For the rest of their life. When he gifts us for ministry. Why don't those gifts just reside in us permanently? I think because we would then rely on ourselves rather than him. The answer has to do then with who gets the glory. I think that God allowed the disciples to fall flat on their faces in this very public of settings because they had swaggered into this situation without praying, without trusting, imagining that they could handle it on their own because they were something special. They were Jesus' disciples after all, and to them had been entrusted authority. Therefore, if they had been able to cast out the demons, they would have received the glory and praise from the crowd. The Father would have thanked them instead of God, and God will share His glory with no one, not even His children. When His children move mountains, God will see to it that they do so in such a way that everybody recognizes that the mountain was moved by the power of God. I want to demonstrate that from those same two texts that I've been using, John 15 and 1 Peter 4. I want to demonstrate that the reason why God says that supernatural power to perform supernatural ministry is available only as you abide in me and ask for it and trust me to provide it. That the reason why he does that is so that he receives on the other end of that ministry the glory and the honor and the praise for the moving of mountains. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my, wa- my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look at verse 8. By this is my Father glorified. By what? By branches abiding in the vine, receiving the supernatural sap from the vine that enables them to bear fruit, that brings the Father glory. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Father is glorified when we recognize that apart from Christ we can do nothing, and therefore we abide in Christ and trust Him for the power to bear much fruit. 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us exactly the same thing. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is 100% committed to the demonstration of His own glory throughout creation. And that is why He reserves the power for kingdom ministry for Himself to be accessed by His servants, by His children, by faith through prayer. So that when the demons flee in terror at the command of His disciples, it is evident that they are fleeing from Him to whom belongs all glory and power and dominion forever and ever. When I preach a sermon, and someone is brought from death to life, from darkness to light, God will do it in such a way that it is clear that it was not through the foolishness of my preaching, but through the power of God that a sinner was converted. Always. So let's summarize the message for the disciples of Jesus, for the church. The power for effective kingdom ministry does not reside within us. Supernatural fruit can be produced only by supernatural power, and supernatural power is not ours to command. It comes from God. It is accessed by faith through prayer, so that God may be glorified in all things. Now, I am very concerned that we get this point, that that we drive it down deep into our hearts because I can preach sermons. I've been doing it for over 10 years now, and they can be good, and they can be interesting, and they can even be biblical, and yet they will be powerless unless by faith through prayer God brings the power to raise the dead. You, you can lead connect groups, and they can be good, and they can be interesting, and they can be personal, and they can be applicable, and they can be cathartic even. They can make people feel better, but lives will not be eternally transformed unless, by faith, Through prayer, you access that power which God gives to those who trust Him for the transformation of lives. Tonight, when 30 or 35 of us gather and we're going to lead this children's ministry called Awana, you can show up tonight and you can do that in your own natural power and if you've done it before, you may be quite good at it. You may be able to take those verses and, and dialogue with, with kids over them and, and apply them to seven, eight, nine year olds. You may be able to do fantastic puppet shows and teach foundational biblical truth but kids will not be really convinced of their sin and really brought into the kingdom unless by faith through prayer you access the power that is needed to raise the dead. And this is expanded to any ministry which the church is called to perform. Apart from Christ and the power that he supplies by faith through prayer, we can do nothing. At First Baptist Nix, I want us to fear something that I don't think is feared enough. I want us to fear the natural performance of supernatural ministry. I want us to be afraid of that. Because it's easy. Believing prayer is hard. Prayerless ministry is easy. Showing up unprepared for a Awana is easy. Showing up being prayed up is hard. Fear the natural performance of supernatural ministry. Why? What's to be afraid of? The natural performance of supernatural ministry creates only counterfeit fruit. A prayerless ministry is a powerless ministry. So let's be committed to being afraid of something. Can we do that? Let's be afraid as a church of trusting in our own strength, in our own natural gifts, and trying to do the work of the ministry in our own power. The only way to move mountains and to cast out demons and to see more people converted than we do, the only way to see marriages restored and people set free from the bondage of sin is by the power which God supplies by faith through prayer to the glory of his name. That's the only ministry that matters. That's sermon number one. Sermon number two speaks to a different audience and it conveys a different message. You see, the father of the demonized child did not care in that moment who cast out the demon, the disciples or Jesus. That was not of concern to him. In this moment, he didn't care by what power the disciples tried to do the work of the ministry. In this moment, he didn't even care who got the glory. In this moment, he could not see beyond his own desperate need. His only child, so says Luke, was the victim of the malevolent will of an evil spirit who from childhood would seize his little boy with epileptic seizures and would try to burn him in the fire or drown him in the water. What a frightening experience for a child and what a horrifying thing to endure for a father. This father is desperate, and in his desperation, he sought out this itinerant, miracle-working rabbi of whom he'd heard. Not finding Jesus, though, he settled for Jesus' disciples, and he begged them to cast out the demon, but they were unable. Now, however, Jesus is back on the scene, and he's commanded that the boy be brought to him. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. See, the demon had bested the disciples, okay, they'd mocked them in their self-sufficient arrogance, but no longer. Now, it was in the presence of the Holy One, and it was terrified and horrified. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. See, Jesus has him or rather the boy's father, has implored Jesus for help. And he's been pleading on the basis of Jesus' compassion. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. We've got nowhere else to go. But that request is not a request of faith. It's a shot in the dark. If you can do anything is a shot in the dark. And Jesus immediately seizes upon that little conditional particle at the beginning of a sentence, if. he says, if? If you can, and he calls upon the Father to make the choice, either I can or I can't, what do you say? Either Jesus possesses the authority to cast out demons or he doesn't, and Jesus is calling this man to a decision, but the Father just can't believe. He cannot muster the faith that he does not possess, and neither can you. It does me no good to stand up here if you are in that kind of desperation. Desperation over your sin. Desperation over guilt. Desperation over the fate of your eternal soul. Desperation over your failing marriage. Desperation over your failing job. Desperation over your wayward kids. Desperation, period. It does me no good to say, just believe. Because you can't believe. That's why you need to trust Jesus with your unbelief, which is exactly what Jesus is calling this man to do. He doesn't know if Jesus can heal his son. He's never seen Jesus before. Right now, all he can do is hope against hope, and yet all that he has, he casts upon Jesus, and so must you this morning. Immediately the father of the child cried out loud and said, I believe, help my unbelief. See, unable to muster faith, he trusts Jesus with his doubt. Unable to believe, he trusts Jesus with his unbelief. And in the fathomless compassion of Christ, who knows our frame, who knows that we are but dust, that mustard seed of faith is enough to move the mountain of the demon. faith which receives the mercy of Christ. It is weak faith in a strong Savior. The point is not how great is your faith. The point is how great is the object in which you place your faith, namely Christ. So the call this morning to you in your desperation is to cast all that you have, your doubt, your unbelief, your guilt, your sin, your fear, your dread, your despair. Cast it all on him and it is enough. There's an encouragement here for you who are here in the midst of deep, pressing, anguished need. I may not know what that is. I'm aware of some of them, but I'm sure I'm not aware of all of them. I'll tell you what it feels like, though. It feels like as you sit here that the walls are collapsing in on you. It prevented you from paying attention to anything that I said in the first half of this message. It prevented you from enjoying the songs that you sang in the first part of this message or in the first part of this service. It may be a failing marriage. It may be a battle against sin that threatens to destroy you, just like this demon was destroying the child. It may be the desperate struggle for assurance. It may be the desperation of being a father and watching a child be destroyed. There is hope for you in this text. There is hope for those who want to believe that God works all things for good to those who love him and who therefore want to believe that God will work their desperate situation for good as well. But sitting here this morning, you just can't. There's hope for you. If you cannot see light through your darkness and you cannot see a way out of this mess, you want to, but in your weakness and your pain, you just can't. The call to you this morning is to cast whatever it is that you have on Jesus. Trust Him with your doubt. Trust Him with your unbelief. Trust Him with your despair. And it is enough. This man did not have a rock-solid assurance that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus possessed all authority in heaven and on earth to command demons to depart and they must obey him. He wasn't sure what he believed. All he knew was that he was desperate and he had nowhere else to go. That's the mustard seed of faith that saves. Are you there? I've got nowhere else to go. I've exhausted all of my own resources. I've got nowhere else to turn. I don't know what you can do, but I know if you don't do anything, I'm going to die. That's faith. It's all he had, and yet all he had, he cast on Jesus. And that's what this text is calling you to do this morning. So two sermons, two words, to two audiences, one Jesus. To the disciples, this text is a reminder that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. If we are to engage in eternally effective kingdom ministry, which ought to be the only thing we're interested in, then we must approach every ministry by faith through prayer in the power which God supplies so that to Him belongs all of the glory. Remember that tonight at Awana as you sit down with kids and seek to evangelize them over the verses they've memorized. Remember that tomorrow as you go into your lost and pagan workforce. Remember that as your phone rings and a friend whose marriage is failing is calling and they're asking for counsel, whatever it may be. You remember that this week. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But by faith, through prayer, you can do the impossible. And let us fear the natural performance of supernatural ministry because that kind of ministry only produces counterfeit fruit. That's message number one. Message number two to the desperate. This is a reminder that it is not only great faith, that receives the the compassion and the help of Christ. It is also a weak faith that entrusts everything that it has, even its doubt, even its fear, even its despair, even its unbelief, trusts everything it has to Jesus. Because it is not the strength of your faith that saves, it is the strength of your Savior. And so this morning, the Spirit calls you to cast everything that you have, all of yourself, upon Christ trust Him with your doubt, trust Him with your fear, trust Him with your unbelief, trust Him with your questions, if all you can say to Jesus this morning is, I believe, help my unbelief, you will find in the grace of Jesus Christ that it is enough.